Welcome to the Lead and Follow podcast. I'm your host, Sharna Fabiano, author of the book, Lead and Follow. And I'm pleased to bring you the latest research, insights, and educational techniques in the emerging field of followership to help you connect and collaborate better with the people around you, whether you're leading or following. Please do leave us a review in your favorite podcast app, and thanks so much for listening. Today, I'm talking with my very own longtime teacher and coach, Amy Lombardo. Amy is the author of the book Brilliance and the founder of the Brilliance Academy for Personal Transformation and Social Change right here in Los Angeles, which is where I did my own coach training several years ago. She's someone who's been very important in my life. She's dramatically influenced my own journey, and I'm so very pleased to give you all the chance to hear from her today on how the coaching relationship itself teaches us so much about equitable leading and following. Amy, I'm so pleased to have you. Welcome to the podcast. Thank you so much for having me, Sharna. It's an absolute pleasure to be here. As I mentioned, I have personally learned so much from you over, I think it's been over 10 years now. And so I would love you to start us off by sharing with listeners what the Brilliance Academy is, what the book represents in your professional work. Thank you. Yeah, I've been working in the field of human potential, we'll say, in one form or another for over 20, almost 20 years, actually, just about 20 years this summer, next month, actually. And at first, it looked more like yoga teaching uh, before yoga became as popularized as it is now. And at the time I was living in New York City and uh, then it morphed into wellness workshops that I was leading in places like nursing homes and hospitals and schools and corporate offices. And from there, uh, when I moved out here about 11 years ago in Los Angeles, all my, I call it affectionately my laboratory time in New York, where I got to experiment hands-on with people literally wherever they were in the the process of their humanity, whether that was young two-year-olds I was working with in pediatric offices or uh, individuals with Alzheimer's uh, in nursing homes or anything in between, I noticed a commonality in the human experience. And when I moved out here to Los Angeles, I took this time of 10 years in the field at the time of uh, seeing people in their process, trying to own their potential and put it in a format that allowed people, no matter their circumstance, to tap into the part of us that's untouched by the stories of the ego. And uh, the work that came out of that was the book Brilliance. And Brilliance is, uh, if I had to, the book, if I had to put it in a short synopsis of what it is, it's, it's a journey that we take a person on to get back to their inner self so that they can find that place within that can direct the path of their life in a way that feels in alignment with their highest truth and authenticity. And so when I wrote that book, for me, it was a pulling together of both my work in the embodiment field and the yoga field, my work in the more left brain, practical, strategic business coaching field, pulling all those pieces together. It's kind of like practical spirituality and spiritual practicality at the same time. And I didn't want it to be a format that was specific to me. I wanted it to be something that anybody could pick up, activate and own in a way that uh, they brought their special uniqueness to it. So I created the Brilliance Academy for personal transformation and social change to train others in how to use this formula of brilliance 
to work with the people that they're best suited to work with and bring that to life in their work. Thank you for sharing all that. It's so fascinating, I think, to hear a little bit of the background and, you know, what went what went into this very densely packed resource, which is the book. And I'm going to put the link in the show notes so everyone can order it. It's, um, it's such a, a, an important resource. When you're sharing about the, the return journey just now back to our inner wisdom, it made me realize that there's so much richness in leading and following right in that. And that as I learned through the work we did together to continually make choices that were more in alignment with a sense of authenticity, that sense of who I, who I was, no matter what other people were doing around me, I almost felt like I was leading and following at the same time. Like choice is such a, a leader-like action, but at the same time, every one of those choices needed to be coming from a very deep listening. Hmm. That's really beautifully put. I really like how you describe that. It's, and I would imagine that you could even say you were you were leading and following externally and internally at the same time. I think when when one is seeking to find authenticity, a lot of times it might seem ironic, but a lot of times we we don't even know what it is. So slowing down ourselves enough to even ask the question, what do I like? What does feel like my truth? That's kind of a revelatory act for a lot of people. And once the question is asked, which might take the leader in you to ask it, um, then you have to sit back and let the follower in you sit with perhaps the discomfort of not knowing right away, or the discomfort of perhaps having known all along, but finally having the courage to sit in it and listen to it and honor it. So following is, uh, you know, a big, a big part of that authenticity journey too. not just leading from it out in the way you show up in the world, but always being willing to follow that, that voice or that guidance within, even if you don't always know where it's taking you. Absolutely. I, I like how you framed it as a kind of external action, leading and internal following. And so, so often it was uncomfortable, right? And that kind of reminds me, wow, there's a lot of courage in following. And I remember one of the early practices you invited us into was accessing our courage and what it takes to to follow with with courage and to be really open to those answers. I want to ask you a little about the relationship in, in both, you know, I've experienced your work both one-on-one and also with you as a facilitator of small groups. And one thing I admire and have learned from you, not only the the material, you know, of brilliance, but just your choices and how you hold your position in in the group or in the relationship in, in terms of leading, following, or, you know, sharing power. I wonder if you could just talk a little bit about how you go about that and the role that that relationship has and how the work happens. Yeah, I think, um, you know, it comes up in different ways, depending on if you're working with an individual one-on-one or if you're working with a group. I would say, though, that in each context, what remains the same is I'll, I'll give you the way that I, I understand it and I contextualize it for myself whenever I'm going into a scenario where I'm trying to be of service. So that's number one is I, I, whether I'm leading or following, it's the commonality is I'm always in service. And so that, that already sets a different tone for me, uh, when I go in that space, but then, because then I'm not coming from ego. So even if I'm leading or following, it's coming from a higher mission 
driven space rather than I need to perform in either of these roles, which is very different. And then the second thing is there's to, to have respect for the space. And what I mean by that is there's me and the other person or people, if it's, if it's a group and we're the kind of the cast of characters, but there's another character and the other character is the space. And what I call the space is the emergent field of possibility that exists only because we are all there together with a common intention. And so when I go into that space, I try to be very clear that of what the common intention is, but also present it in a way where everybody knows it's not my intention or Amy's intention or the coach's intention. It is a collective co-created intention. And I will actually let people say, you know, how do you interpret this intention? What's your intention? Call it into the space. And then what happens is from that moment, not only have we sort of called in the collective field of emergent possibility, we're now all taking ownership of it. We're all taking, I should say stewardship rather than ownership. We're all agreeing to be stewards of that emergent field of possibility. And so I think what that allows is a safe container for a person to access within themselves their own leader and follower. Whereas when you don't do any of that and you go into places where I'm the coach or I'm the teacher or the trainer, there's always an unconscious um, power dynamic there that is impacting us, even if we don't want it to be there. Just by the fact that I'm the teacher, uh, you might default to student role and then you might have stuff come up like, I have to be a good performer. I have to do this right. Um, I have to be the smart student. I have to be the class clown, whatever things come up for the person. So if we don't call it in, in a different way and honor that third party of the space that holds the context for us all, we're, we're likely to fall into these unconscious patterns around power that are there with leadership and followership. I love how you describe this space as a third entity. Yeah, that's it. I mean, it, I know you know this because of the work you've done and, and do. It's palpable. You can literally feel it. It's an ener- it's an energy. And uh, it's an energy that's surprising and unpredictable and beautiful and mysterious. And it's it's the place from which I think innovation and true connection can arise. Yeah, I've I've seen that like described sort of, you know, in different ways in different places, even in, in the world of improvised dance, we use that term space and tango dancers also speak of the sort of third entity that arises from the couple, you know, once you're very connected. So it's a beautiful phenomenon. And it, it just, I think it just bears, you know, emphasizing that it's a collective act. And of course, one, you know, a, a leader of a group could, you know, invite that to take place. But Unless it's a collective action of holding, it doesn't really have that power. At least that's my experience. Yeah. And I think what you do when you when you acknowledge the third entity or the emergent field of possibility um, is you don't just co-create that space. That space, in a way, kind of creates you guys. It, it dictates a little bit. It opens you up in ways that you wouldn't otherwise have you not been present to it. So it, it's... It's, it's a different type of entity, but it's very much an influence in the way in which our journey ends up going as well. I also love how you, you said how that space allows each person to be their own leader follower. 
Yeah. Right. That, I mean, sometimes the, the words maybe get in the way, like I put them together, like leader follower, like body, mind, like they're one, <laughs> you know, like one thing. And that when there is that field of possibility, then each individual can access their leader follower, right? They're like their full, their full being. Yeah. I like that. Cause it's, it's funny. It's like, I know you come up against this edge too. When you, when you work in the field that you and I work in, you have to give labels to things that kind of, um, <laughs> don't, don't necessarily aren't necessarily easily described with labels. And, um, yes. <laughs> you know, when, when you're in a, when you're in a followership space or a leadership space, it's not like you're thinking to yourself, Oh, I'm being a great leader right now, or, Oh, I'm being a great follower right now. And so when, when we honor that emergent field, I think what it does is it takes away the pressure to label or categorize yourself. And instead you're just, you're in connection with, and you're, you're free to be in flow with, and then we don't get hung up on the words so much. Mm -hmm. Yeah, totally. I wonder if this way of creating the third entity could be taken into other realms have you seen it, say, like in a professional s scenario or in a community work environment? Is it done the same way? Or do you have any observations and how one might do that? Yeah, definitely. I, I, I think absolutely. It's a space that's always present, but it, it requires us to be aware of it and choose to call it forth. And I guess one could say that if I was, you know, if I was in a corporate setting and I have worked with a lot of corporate high level leaders, people in leadership roles, teaching them how to do this to become present to the space for a couple reasons. When you become present to the space, it gives you a little psychological distance as the quote unquote official leader to have to figure everything out or whatever weird pressures we put on ourselves in that role. And it opens us up again to an idea of creativity and connection and process and collaboration like you so beautifully talk about in your book. So this is definitely translatable to let's just stick with the corporate environment for now because I gave that example. When a leader taps in, and I mentioned before that I tap into service. So I encourage a lot of my corporate leaders to think about like, what's the mission here or what's the thing that's bringing you guys all together? Be in service to that call that vision or that idea or that end goal forth and ask to be of service to it. And when we do that, then that person is a lot less likely to react from their ego space. And more than 75% of communication gets communicated non-verbally. So if a person, if a, if a leader or person in a leadership role has done that calling in of the space, the emergent field, what they're also calling in is they're seeing the brilliance in everybody. They're seeing the excellence in everybody, including themselves. And then that invites a different conversation into the space because the second those potential followers come into the door, they're not just hearing your words. They're feeling your energy of you're here to connect. You're here to have all of us excel and amplify what it is we're trying to do. And that completely changes what kind of outcome you get as a team. Yeah, I'm just as I was listening to you speak, I was remembering the feeling of being in in our group together. And there's tell me if you experience this similarly, but there's something because 
the lead and follow roles are always simultaneous and they're never really distinguishable. It's like turning a coin over and over again. There's something about a person who's in the default leader seat, say like, you know, the facilitator or the director. There's something about that person deliberately following, right? Deliberately saying, I'm in service to the mission or I'm sitting down, you know, in a circle at the same level as everyone or, you know, doing any number of these actions that place them in a follower role that kind of automatically shifts the power in the room so that the others seem to have a little bit more access to their own leader, mm-hmm. right? As well as their own follower. I'm not sure I'm I'm putting it all together here, but d- does that reflect anything for you? Yeah, I do think that's accurate. And I think um, what, and I, I mean, I've even seen that when I would teach uh, yoga to three-year-olds. <laughs> I mean, like that was seriously, I remember that. I think I told you this at one point, I had a class of, um, three-year-olds, there was 10 of them. And I don't know what planet I was on. And I thought this was like a a good idea at the time, but, (laughs) but it was me alone and 10 three-year-olds. And I had them for an hour and 15 minute class, which is like obscene. Most kids class are like half an hour to 45 minutes. And, um, I, I saw real quick that if I went in a traditional, I didn't know, I didn't have this languaging at the time, but I, I could feel real quick that if I went into that traditional sort of like power over role, like leader role, I was going to lose them. So I had to make them in authority of their own process. So I had to take them up this elevator to this third floor. I mean, it was ridiculous. I had to take 10 three-year-olds up an elevator to third floor and get them in a room, roll out all the yoga mats and then get them working. And so, you know, while we're waiting for the elevator, I would say, oh my gosh, line up at the wall there's, there's, uh, an elephant coming. We're in the jungle and you guys are all trees. And then instantly they just picked poses and became trees and they became the leaders. And then from there, it was just that one little adjustment and starting to ask questions, which is another way that you can call forth the leader in others. Um, they led me. And then my job for the next hour and 15 minutes was to be the follower and see who needed maybe support in stepping into their authority or direction if they were doing something that wasn't safe. But really, that was an example of supreme following. And the same holds true for adult environments. And 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 uh, I think what it does on a human level, if I just had to break it kind of more meta, it disorients us because you go into a room and you think leader is going to act this way, follower is going to act this way. And if you do the opposite, it disorients the person and gets them into a place of realness and authenticity again, rather than performing what they think their role should be. I love that. Well, first, I love the story of the three-year-olds. <laughs> it's amazing. It's like, that's got to be a, a greater accomplishment even than like herding cats up an elevator. Oh, oh my gosh. I can't even tell you. <laughs> but I, I love the link between authenticity and this kind of leader followerness you know, where everyone is sort of sovereign and can flow in and out almost of those roles, that that in a way is a definition of authenticity that really appeals to me. Mm. And it feels feels true for me based on my experience that nobody is just a leader or just a follower, right? It's not like a natural state for a being, but that we're always in flow with those around us. I I couldn't agree more. I mean, you know, the way, the way in uh, my book that I talk about the authenticity with the four A's, 
awareness and then mm-hmm. um, alignment and then action and allow. So you become aware of who you are, you and what what values you have, and then you align with those values and then you act in a way that's in alignment with those values. And the, the final one, which I think is uh, very follower-esque in some ways, is um, I allow myself to be changed by the journey. But the way that I, I picture that uh, graphically or energetically is the infinity sign. And right down the, mi- mm. right down the middle of the infinity sign is a, a vertical line. And the awareness piece feeds right into the alignment piece. And that's in the interior realm on the one side of the infinity sign. And then the action and the allowing pieces in the external realm. And so I've always seen it as that flow. And so, you know, you could also put, I never thought of it that way, but you could put on that same graphic, like this here, you're flowing in your leader and here you're mm-hmm. going in your follower and vice versa. And it, it, it's reminiscent also of the yin and the yang symbol, where you always have yeah. a little bit of the one in the other. So you never really have the separation. It's um, just about being deliberate and intentional about where you're orienting from. I can totally see it. And we'll have to now put a graphic in the show notes for everyone. <laughs> I'm sorry. Because it's such a beautiful image. No, it's, it's lovely. Yeah, I can totally see that. I just keep thinking that this, you know, the idea of authenticity, it seems on the one hand, you know, very general, uh, but on the other hand, it's it's like the thing, it's like the linchpin, you know, in any relationship, in any group, in any workplace, in any government even, you know, I would venture to say there this is sort of the the dynamic or, you know, the when there's the lack of this balance that we start to see dysfunction. I'm just wondering, you know, have you seen any of your other clients or groups that you've worked with start to shift, you know, their lives in, in any of these other directions, like places that where, you know, we might not necessarily expect it using these principles. I could use myself as an example. <laughs> yeah, great. <laughs> um, I, so having been in a job or a profession for two decades now where I'm, I'm constantly in more traditional leadership roles, what I've certainly in this last year, what's come kind of and this last year, but also in, in motherhood, I have a four-year-old. I have been squarely put time and again into a place where I have to understand followership in a different way. And I don't know if you find this to be true. So I'm curious to see what, where, if you, your experience with followership or in the work you do, if you've seen this. But for me, I've been able to deprogram some of the imbalance of my leadership bias, we'll say, where I'm always in the leadership role mm-hmm. by doing less, slowing down, listening more, mm-hmm. and then giving, like, if you could picture that emergent field of possibility again, like taking my circle and making it a little quieter, a little smaller and making the emergent field bigger. So that's looked like on my job level, like doing less in my job, less projects going on. And even in facilitation, saying less in my facilitation, honoring more silence in my facilitation, even more than I already did, because I I did that. But how that ties to my authenticity is how I'm going to try to slow this down, because um, it's it's almost a little pre-verbal for me, because I'm I'm really in it right now. But the way it relates to my authenticity, there's a way you can be good 
at leadership skills, like it might even be a little bit effortless for some people where they're good at a task, but the felt experience of it, the embodied experience of being in in a position of leadership or followership for that matter, the felt experience I don't think comes until you really own the followership piece in some ways. I hope that makes sense. So by doing less and in my schedule, for example, I'm able to feel more integrated in how I show up as a leader. And I'm less, even more, uh, I'm even less likely to show up in any egoic driven ways when I do that slowing down and that accessing the, the feeling place more. Does that make sense at all? Am I making any sense? Yeah, it definitely resonates with me in my dance experience. I mean, it also in my work experience, but I think that the dance is much clearer because tango, of course, is these two people and the follower role. And I, I've heard this from other dancers over and over again is the follower role is the one that you feel more. Mm-hmm. And and it's literally the one that moves more mm-hmm. as well, um, physically. And so, the, yeah, I think for me, there is something about when I'm really listening, like it's my whole body's involved. And when I'm at the point of like making a decision or, you know, doing something that's more directive, like a leader mind, I would call it, that feels more like it's uh, everything's already done. I'm just sort of spinning it out of my brain. Mm. Okay. So you helped me put something together there. Thank you for being in this space with me. Cause I'm, I'm literally verbalizing this for the first time. But when I go into the followership feeling realm more, if we want to, at least in this way, it's, it's more of a feeling. I, I then am less likely to be led astray by the leader part of myself that might have an agenda. Mm. So, okay. So if we go back into when I train coaches, Mm -hmm. one of the challenging things when you're a coach and you know, this is like, you might see a person's process or their potential and they don't. And there's a part of your ego. Cause you're a person too. You're not just a coach. There's a part of your ego that might want to go, but can't you just see you could do this, this, and this, and then everything would be okay. There's part of us that's going to want to do that. And that's the perhaps danger of an unchecked leadership mind. Mm-hmm. And that's where the followership feeling realm says, yes, it doesn't matter. All that stuff that you think you quote unquote know Mm -hmm. is irrelevant noise. It's just noise from the leader mind. And that when you're in the feeling body, the followership role, you're just holding space for a person's process to let their process unfold in the way and in the timing that's right for them. And you're less likely to go in again, those agenda driven spaces, if that makes sense. Yeah, that totally makes sense. And I here's how I would feel it like in my everyday work work, you know, like my coaching or teaching work is if I try to plan or schedule or even design a curriculum like too too quickly, like just from my head, like, oh, yeah, I know how to do this. I'm just going to put it together and then like put it out. It will not be it will not work very well. Like it will be almost like wasted effort. I need to actually take time to sit with whatever the thing I want to do is like feel it fully in my body and make sure this is the right thing first of all and then do I have all the resources I need to do it and then feel am I connected enough to people who might want it so there's like definitely this it feels to me like slowing down also 
and waiting, which I associate a lot with following mm-hmm. before I make the decision, mm-hmm. right? Before I let my mind, okay, now, I, you know, let my mind take all of that data and then go forward, you know, with, with a thing. And if, if I do take that time, then, then the, whatever the project is or the decision is feels much more grounded and certain. Yeah. I love that. And, and I think it's, it's helping me reflect on my own situation because I'm so, uh, I'm a fast thinking person and I'm forward driven. I'm very, uh, ambitious and I can, I'm a doer, I can get things done. And so I haven't always honored the follower role in myself. And now, you know, doing, doing leadership type of positions, but having a, a much greater reverence for the follower role within myself. Um, it's opening me up to understanding how that role supports the leader in being even of greater service. Yeah, I can see that. I mean, you know, it's a little bit hard, I think, to talk about it in yourself because it's like, it's all you, you know, mm-hmm. like the follower in me and the leader in me. But I can definitely see that in in a group, like say I'm, you know, working with someone who I'm supporting Right. And my ability to not be like, oh, just do this and this and this and say that to this person, but just to like literally be silent and wait or just to provide more information or to regulate my own system. That I feel like is a huge gift to a leader, say, like in a team environment, you know, whether it's like a team of software engineers or a team of educators or a team of chefs, you know, that being able to be present and wait and open serves that person who's tasked with making the decision, like so much more with just overloading them with opinions and, uh, you know, other kinds of information. Mm. Yeah. So imagine if you were to internalize that for yourself, then like when I work with people in, in like, I think of corporate leaders again, I can think of many corporate leaders I've worked with where we, we work on getting more comfortable saying, uh, I don't know, <laughs> which is like, it yeah. seems like, Oh, what, why would you want that? Cause you know, you want more leadership and do better and faster and be strategic and figure it all out. And it's like, actually there's tremendous power as a leader or anybody for that matter, but in a leadership role where you can own your, I don't know your authentic, I don't know, because then that's another thing that can call forth the, uh, leadership in the other. So there's ways that, you know, when you, and that, and that ties the authenticity piece in, right? Cause we're mm-hmm. not, we're not pretend, yeah. we're not pretending anymore that we're the leader with all the answers, but we're the leader with authenticity because we're going to say when we don't know. And that's, that's pretty rare in a lot of leadership spaces and corporate spaces. So when you find one of those, that's a, that's a gem in my opinion. It is. It really is. I've talked to a lot of people who are in more more conventional follower roles, right? Like they're an employee or a designer or something. And so them embracing followership is one thing, right? And is hugely helpful and balancing. But the people who are more maybe on the executive level who aren't who are even less used to that, you know, them them embracing that they can also be followers, I can imagine is you know, even even more powerful. 
Yeah. And I, I think, remember before we were talking about the, the leader sort of calling in the emergent field of possibilities. Mm-hmm. I think good followers do that intuitively, right? Like the, the followers who are, are, are in service to the leader or the group by being quiet and being still and holding space, those are also calling forth the emergent field of possibilities. So that the, in that way, the follower is contributing enormously to what gets accomplished, but, you know, it's not the thing that is going to get the, um, you know, alkylate on the board. It says employee of the week is so-and-so for being a really good space holder. (laughs) Right. But I wish that it would, you know, maybe we can, uh, you know, work towards that. I would love to see a space holder of the week award. Let's do it. All right. All you people out there who work in corporate offices, Please write this down in your next memo. Spaceholder space. awards. <laughs> yeah, because um, I think that's part of the hurdle, right? In this sort of, again, we're all kind of, all of all of us in this culture learning to redefine follower, uh, but redefining follower, not as this sort of inferior role, but as, as the spaceholder, as the one that opens that vast field of possibility. Like that's really powerful. It's a very different power than the power of decision, for example, you know, which is a different one. But I love thinking of following as opening this field of possibility. Yeah, I I think that is definitely in their wheelhouse when you're whenever you're in that role. And, uh, you know, my I had a teacher used to describe describe it, like with the with the yin and the yang energy, yang being more leadership and yin being more followership. Mm -hmm. She used to say, okay, all the furniture, all the structures in this room, that's the yang, that's the the masculine energy or the yin ener- or, or the leader energy. But the walls and the floor, that's the that's the um, yin energy or the mm-hmm. follower energy in, in this uh, uh, metaphor that we're talking about. So imagine any room without walls and floors. You just don't have a room. So right. it's it's essential to to any process happening. Yeah, beautiful. You've already given many portals into this way of embodying followership, but would you like to share with listeners any other thoughts on, you know, if they want to just experience themselves as as followers wherever they are, where might be a place to start? When I was saying before how when you're in a leadership role, you can get co-opted by your own agenda. Mm-hmm. Here's the thing about our animal selves. We forget that, you know, we're humans and we're so attached to our intellects and our brains that we sometimes forget we're actually animals too. And so when I feel too attached to my agendas or my stories of any kind, I drop into my animal body. And the way I do that is I close my eyes and I just do the very instinctual things bodies do. I breathe. I might move into a position that feels more comfortable because animal bodies, you know, they're going to, they're going to be drawn to do things that feel pleasurable or nourishing or comfortable. So if I just close my eyes, I'll even do it now, just close my eyes and I'll feel my breath and I'll notice if there's any way my body wants to shift position so that I'm more in that realm of feeling rather than doing or thinking. And that immediately sets the tone for me to be in a follower energy. And I have done this in arguments with my husband. I've done it in client calls. I've done it in group facilitation. 
the, whenever I feel the inner critic or the voice going, Oh, you got to do this, or you got to perform this, or this is how I want to respond. Whenever I hear that volume in the mind get high, that's when I do this. So if people can drop into their animal body and give themselves that space to feel breath, change their position. So they're, uh, my one teacher used to say, instead of taking the breath, receive your breath. And I, I like to picture it as the pores on my skin, literally opening to receive the breath. Just doing that alone is going to dramatically shift how you are showing up within yourself, which will then change how you are showing up within the space. I love receive the breath, right? Yeah. I'm going to, I'm going to do that for the rest of the day. So beautiful. (laughs) Yeah. Love it. I love it. Yeah. Amy, so much wisdom in this call and as always things emerge that we didn't plan because being with you is just an endless field of possibility. (laughs) So please share with listeners how they can get the book, how they can get in touch with you. I'm going to put everything in the show notes as well, but let's hear it uh, from you here before we wrap up. Sure, sure. So um, the book is called Brilliance, and it can be get anywhere books books can be uh, ordered. But I like to just put a plug for local bookshops uh, whenever possible. So go that route if you can. And uh, my website's just my name, amylombardo.com. And the best thing to do really is if you want to stay in touch with me just to join my newsletter list. I have a couple of self-care workshop programs that I'm I'm working on that are looking at how do you root into your brilliance as a form of self-care versus like self-care being bubble baths and candles. And then the other thing I'm working on is doing small cohorts, small groups of individuals and taking them through the book. So they have the felt experience of some of what we've talked about today of going through your own transformation process, but also doing it within the space where you're negotiating leadership and followership roles with people as you do it. Thank you so much. I, again, will put all of that in the show notes and just strongly encourage you to get a little bit more Amy in your life. I've learned so much about authenticity and so many other things from you and will continue to do so, no doubt. So perhaps we'll have you back again. I would love that. And uh, just a, a huge congratulations and really a bow, a deep bow to you for the way you show up so beautifully and own your own process so that you can guide others into these spaces that our society doesn't always have words for. There's a way that you hold it that is accessible and uh, welcoming to people of all walks of life. And I'm so grateful for the work that you're doing in the world. Thank you for showing up as you. Thank you, Amy. Thank you so much. You have been listening to the Lead and Follow podcast. Special thanks to Glover Gill for composing our music. And thank you to all of our subscribers. If you enjoyed this episode, please consider supporting the show with a paid subscription. And if your team or organization is interested in followership training, please reach out anytime. I'd love to help.